Welcome to episode 49 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. After 48 episodes, I hope that you're convinced that we are at war, and that you, as a Christian, are the targeted enemy. A lot of non-Christians are also an enemy because these evil globalists have the audacity to think that anyone who breathes their air and drinks their water without their permission is a natural-born enemy. It should not be a surprise to any Christian that we are treated as an enemy because we're the natural enemy of Satan and, by extension, his worldly forces. You can take it to the bank that their most vindictive plans are still in the future and they will be directed primarily against Christians and Jews because that's what the Bible says. In Revelation 2, Jesus instructs the church of Smyrna, which is symbolic of the Christians who will be alive in the lead-up to the tribulation, that some of them will be cast into prison and others will be killed. This is the second event of Revelation 2 and 3 leading up to the Great Tribulation, and in my timeline, Smyrna will be the next event to occur. The parallel passages of Revelation 6 and Matthew 23 imply that the people who will be doing the persecuting are government officials and police, which is becoming easier and easier to believe as America transitions to an actual fascist state and not the pretend one of Donald Trump supporters. Satan is not at war with Allah, or with Baal, or with Molech, or with Ishtar, or with Shiva. He's at war with Yahweh and his son Jesus Christ. And because of them, he and his forces are at war with you and me. It is an unconventional war that's filled with unconventional weapons. These fourth and fifth generation unconventional weapons kill just as effectively as a bullet to your head, although they're much harder to perceive, especially to people who will accept any plausible explanation for the surge in deaths other than fourth and fifth generation weapons. I could spend a lot more time describing what those weapons are and how they work and the schemes and expectations of those who wield them, but I'm not going to because that's what everyone else in the truth movement is trying to do. There are lots of podcasts that cover these things. Instead, I'm going to take us in a related but different direction one that will tie together all these weapons on the physical level to what's going on in the background. The last 48 episodes have introduced us to the latest ways the world wages its punitive little wars, but now we're going to go behind the scenes to look at the real powers that lie behind and control these weapons and the associated transhumanist agenda. This topic can be very disconcerting and more than a little depressing to some people, so I would like to remind my listeners that Christians aren't supposed to get too agitated or flustered over the world's attempts to make our lives unpleasant and short. We are not supposed to live in a constant state of worry and agitation over what might happen tomorrow. Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Notice that he didn't say, Don't worry about today. We're supposed to worry about today because today contains all the things that we will encounter. If we don't worry about the things that we will encounter, and by worry I mean being concerned and alert about them, if we aren't concerned and alert about the things we will encounter, then we will be careless and potentially deceived, which is always bad. Over and over and over in the Bible, God warns us about deceptions and admonishes us not to be deceived. In Jeremiah 29.8, he said, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. That warning does not apply to just Old Testament Jews. It applies to us today. Prophets are people who supposedly speak for God. 
There are Christians from history who claim they received inspired messages from God. Christians like Joseph Smith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Ellen White of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There are Christians today who claim to be prophets of God. Men like Kevin Zadai, Robert Henderson, Jeremiah Johnson, and women like Kat Kerr and Cindy Jacobs. And there are others who tack the title Apostle onto their name, most notably the highest-ranking members of the Mormon Church. Most mainline denominations and evangelical churches believe that the office of prophet and apostle expired with the completion of the New Testament. They expired because their purpose had been fulfilled, and their place was taken by the completed book of God, the Bible. But whether you think the offices have been retired or not, it's clear from the Bible that God takes the office of prophet very seriously, and he has no tolerance for the false prophets because they can cause considerable damage to the things and people of God. In the Old Testament, God decreed a severe consequence for anyone who was a false prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22, God said, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. That's the punishment God says is appropriate for being a false prophet. Death. And then he gave a test that the Jews could use to discern whether a prophet was truly sent by God or was a false one. Verse 21. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You see, it's a very simple test. Everything that a prophet says God has declared about the future must come true 100% of the time in every way that the prophet said it would come true. God doesn't get things wrong, so if a prophet conveys the actual words of God correctly, they will come true. How many of our modern so-called prophets have this track record? I suspect none of them. How many of these so-called prophets have been terminated one way or the other by their congregations for getting a prophecy wrong, even if terminating just means jettisoning the prophet? Almost none. These congregations subject themselves to false teachings repeatedly because once in a while the prophet gets something close to being right, and in doing so, these congregations demonstrate that they do not know their Bible very well. In the New Testament era, the Apostle Paul said, But even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So the test didn't change in the church era. The 100% reliability test still applied. The message here is that God does not want us to be deceived by false prophets who claim to have received revelations in the name of God. How much less does he want us to be deceived by false prophets who come from the world, conveying messages that are not even pretending to be from God? And there are all kinds of worldly prophets. In the ancient world, worldly prophets attached themselves to other gods, small g, and became part of their official entourage. In the modern world, they attach themselves to modern gods, like pharmaceutical companies, so-called science that is actually pseudoscience, climate, and big tech, not to mention the biggest god of all, the government with its many, many technocratic prophets, diviners, and soothsayers. Just like the diviners and soothsayers of yesteryear, they subject us to potions and magic amulets called test kits to supposedly keep us safe from invisible threats and provide us with protective powers that we otherwise would not have. Maybe the globalists who control the governments of the world, including ours, will succeed with their nefarious plans to harm us, or maybe they won't, but in either case, 
Christians are not supposed to be obsessed with physical threats to our persons. We are supposed to acknowledge the threats and try to avoid them, but not allow them to interfere with our addressing some far more serious and difficult problems of this age. It's helpful, for example, to know that the shot is a bioweapon so we don't take the shot and make their job of transhumanifying us, or just killing us, that much easier, but we can't let that knowledge control our lives. We have to admit that they might just succeed. Still, if they want to murder and maim us, they should at least be compelled to do so out in the open where the people of the world can see their actions for what they are, even if the people of the world do finally go along with the agenda out of spite against Christians or out of their fear of man or just because they're indifferent to the outcome. The globalists shouldn't be able to hide their murders behind a facade of medicine and health promotion, at least without some pushback. Maybe you regret that you've taken the shot or have to take some maintenance medications for serious health issues, knowing that those medications might also have bioweapons embedded in them. At the end of the day, we have to do what we have to do. So if we are dependent on medicine to live our lives, we're just going to have to live our lives to God and leave it in His hands. Just don't make their job easier by believing their lies and stories about inventing a miracle vaccine over a weekend, and certainly don't participate in the deception by promoting those potions and pushing them on others. We need to make the globalist oligarchs sweat a little bit to implement their evil plans. Despite governmental claims, we're not at war with viruses and climate change or even the people who promote these things. Jesus said that we are to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us maliciously. If that's true, then we're not at war with the people who do these things. But understand that not being at war with them is not the same thing as being at peace with them because they are still an enemy. We're to love our enemies. Enemies are people who intend, directly or indirectly, personally or impersonally, to harm us. Although we're to love them and do good to them, we're not to help them spread their hatred or promote their evil against the rest of the world. If they're poisoning and transhumanifying people using their injectable pharmacia and blanketing the earth with chemical toxins and building 5G towers on every block to aid in their control and weaponization of the internet of everything, then we should stop helping them do that. We need to stop building these machines of death. We can stop investing in their corporations and buying their bonds and working for their Illuminati corporations and taking jobs in their departments of doom. Come out of her, my people, says the Lord in Jeremiah 51:45. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. Do not lose heart or be afraid when rumors are heard in the land. One rumor comes this year, another the next. Rumors of violence in the land and of ruler against ruler. This was a future prophecy for the Neo-Babylonian Empire that would soon destroy the nation of Judah and wreck both Jerusalem and the Temple of God. The destruction of Babylon was a near-term fulfillment of the prophecy that gave the people of Israel some hope and helped to establish the credentials of Jeremiah as a true prophet of God. But these words are also a long-term prophecy that refers to the greater Babylon, the empire of Satan and the Antichrist that is being constructed right before our eyes. The globalists are the people who are facilitating this construction project that will lead to an empire of slavery, misery, and destruction. God tells us to support him by coming out of that empire in every possible way and then work on his behalf. That empire is a physical empire, but it's also a spiritual empire. The spiritual part of the empire is what is ultimately affecting everything around us, including the material world. While every Christian knows the Apostle Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 6, which says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, 
against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Few Christians really understand the full meaning of these words. They think that Paul is emphasizing some personal spiritual development and that the armor of God is needed to make us more Christ-like in our personal character so we will be less prone to entertain our normal sinful urges. Well, to some extent that's true. But if personal spiritual development is all we get out of the passage, then we've completely missed the point of the church, the Bible, and Christ's kingdom. Yes, God wants to mold us spiritually and have a personal relationship with us individually, but no, that's not the entirety of his plan for us. He wants us to be more than just improved versions of our old self. He wants us to be part of an organized political, governmental, religious, and family structure that is headed by Jesus Christ. Our spiritual development is not fundamentally about making us feel more personally connected to Jesus and God. It's about God and his relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the world. Part of our relationship to Christ is to help facilitate and administer his relationship to the world, and it's a very important part of our relationship. Is that a shocking thought to you? Then maybe you're too me-oriented in your Christian walk. Go back to verse 12 of Ephesians 6 and read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul emphasized the we of Christian development. Part of being in Christ's kingdom is recognizing that the kingdom is much more than just me. It is we, a group called the Church of Christ, of which me is just a member. We are commanded to work with one another as like-minded Christians pursuing a common goal. For where there are two or three gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There is a group in this passage, and they have a common purpose that is grounded in the purposes of Christ. That's true in the arena of physical warfare. And it's also true in the arena of spiritual warfare, which is the primary activity that the church is supposed to engage in at this point in history. Does Paul admonish us to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6 because the church is supposed to help us develop a personal relationship with God? No, it's because we as members of the church are supposed to be struggling against something, which is a polite way of saying we're at war with something and that something is not our angry, hostile neighbor. We put on armor to engage in warfare. Armor protects us from attack. Paul went on to describe the nature of this warfare we're to engage in. He said, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Okay, so we don't war against people. He can't make it much plainer than that. In the ancient world, the little gods, small g, formed their little armies of people who would fight the little armies of the other gods. Whichever little army came out on top, that god would be worshipped as the top god. That's the pantheonic model of religion, government, and politics that preoccupied the world for the eons before Jesus arrived. But after Jesus came and established the church, the idea of gods fighting each other through human armies changed to human rulers fighting each other through human armies because Christian proselytes declared that there is only one god and all the pagan gods were not really gods at all. It was a great way to spread Christianity but it left out the very important reality of who the pagan gods really were and their roles in human affairs. The pagan gods were and are fallen angels, and they are real entities with real social, political, and governmental power that was given to them through the agency of a very powerful archangel that we know as Satan. That power was not taken away when Jesus died on the cross and established his church on the earth. That power still exists, 
and it's been steadily reclaiming what it lost to the church, that battle of reclamation beginning in earnest in the 7th century AD. Throughout the church era, that power has been held back by a restrainer as evidenced in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The lawless one is the Antichrist, so the restrainer will continue to restrain until the Antichrist is ready to be brought out of the shadows and into the sunlight. Restraining something does not mean stopping that something. It means slowing it down or preventing it from reaching its ultimate goal. But the restraint will come to an end, and when it does, I have a feeling that the evil it's restraining will explode onto the earth with a ferocity that we can hardly comprehend. Who is this restrainer? The most widespread view is the Holy Spirit, and the next most popular view is the Church, but the text does not say either one. It might be the Holy Spirit, but nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that the Spirit's job is to restrain the evil that's associated with the power structure of Satan, and neither does it suggest that it's Yahweh's job to do that. And the Church has no means to do that, and the Great Commission doesn't mention it. The fact that Paul called this entity the restrainer rather than God or one of his component parts suggests that it is, in fact, not God who does the restraining and not the church. It seems to be something else, maybe a very powerful entity sent by God to do the restraining, probably a very powerful spirit being. So Ephesians 6 calls on us to put on God's armor not to fight our own sinful inclinations and not to fight the physical battles between human beings, but to fight powerful, demonic, and fallen spirits who are the real powers behind the human powers, and we're to do that at least while the restrainer operates. That's why Paul does not talk about physical armor. We're not to put on physical armor to fight human beings. Sorry, soldiers of America, your occupation is not ordained by God. We are instead to engage with the spiritual forces of darkness that surround us, which are demonic forces, And we will stand no chance at all against these powerful demonic spirits if we do not don the full armor of God. We have to don that armor before we engage them. So do you see what the true calling of the elect is? It's not to foster our own spiritual development just so we can have a personal relationship with God. It is to foster our spiritual development so that we can fight spiritually and effectively on behalf of Jesus Christ, and in so doing, we will foster and develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and with God the Father. Bible studies are supposed to do more than just tickle our desire to understand the Bible or foster our relationship with God so we can feel more connected to Him. They are supposed to prepare us for battle while not leaving these other things undone. But if all we do is focus on relationships and feelings, We're not fulfilling our calling as elect representatives on earth of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, the kingdom being a political, governmental, economic, religious, and social system for those who are alive in that day. We are to get the earth ready for the return of Jesus Christ by battling the spiritual forces who currently control it and attract some followers in the process. So that's my sermon. Now to the application. How do we do that? How do we battle spiritual forces on the earth? This seems obvious, but the first thing we have to do is recognize that there are spiritual forces to battle. I can't emphasize how many Christians have a really hard time accepting this concept. They just can't wrap their minds around the idea that there are actually spirit entities that influence and even control aspects of our day-to-day lives, and they can't believe this for two main reasons. First, they've embraced the claims of atheists that there is a clear and absolute separation of material reality from anything we might label spiritual. Atheists say there is no spiritual part of the world, 
But regardless of what they think, most Christians act as if the spiritual world does not meaningfully influence the physical world, and the physical world cannot meaningfully influence the spiritual world. Now, it may be that most Christians do not actually articulate that idea or express it openly, but to the extent that they operate their lives like it's true, they clearly show evidence that they believe it. Second, Christians have embraced the claims of atheist scientists that science and technology operate mechanistically and outside of anything that we might label spiritual reality. In other words, there's no meaningful connection between science, technology, and the spiritual world. Nary do the two meet. Again, whether most Christians would put it that way or admit to this sentiment, their behavior in the world clearly demonstrates that they agree with the idea even if they won't openly admit it. What we really believe about reality is always given away by our lifestyle and actions. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits, and although the direct context was the identification of false prophets, he was also talking about the beliefs that we hold about the world because we give them away in the way we lead our lives. Is there a connection between the physical world of everyday life and the spiritual world of powers and principalities, of demons and fallen angels? Are spiritual entities able to affect the material world in meaningful ways? And more importantly, are we able to affect the spiritual entities in meaningful ways? Can they and we do things that will affect the other's domain? The answer is yes. That's the whole point of the admonition of Ephesians 6. When Pilate was interrogating Jesus and asked him if he was the king of the Jews, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. At that time, the kingdom of Christ was in heaven. He had not established his kingdom on the earth, and indeed he has not established it yet on the earth. But he did establish the church on the earth, a kind of beachhead for his kingdom the church being the bride of Christ. The kingdom of Christ will be fully established on earth when he returns the second time along with us Christians. Revelation 19.14 says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Without going into the full derivation of the meaning of this verse, it's talking about Christians whom Christ is assembling in the spiritual realm who accompany him back to the earth physically. Those Christians, of which we're a part, are coming back, not necessarily on actual white horses, but with actual physical bodies. And they're coming back to do what exactly? Well, to start with, they're coming back to fight with Christ to establish his kingdom. The Bible's very cryptic about the details of what happens when Jesus returns, but one thing was made explicitly clear in Revelation 19.15. It says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. There have been all kinds of creative interpretations for this verse, so to properly understand it, we should break it down into its essential parts. There are three nouns in play in this sentence and two verbs. The nouns are mouth, sword, and nations, so all three of these objects have some importance. A mouth is used to eat and speak. I don't think the passage is talking about consuming food, so it has to have something to do with speaking. A king uses his mouth to give commands, and when we get to the end of the passage, we will see that it ends with a statement that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In other words, he is the top guy, the king, the ruler. So he uses his mouth to give commands or instructions. And what are those instructions? They concern the second noun, a sword, but it's not just any sword. It is not a decorative sword, for example, because it's sharp. A sharp sword is a weapon of war. 
So Jesus is giving instructions on how or where to use a weapon or weapons of war. And what is the instruction? That's the second verb, to strike. He is instructing his forces to use the weapon or weapons of war that he has deployed against the third noun, the nations. It does not mean a nation in the sense of political entities, which is how we use the term these days. It's the Greek word ethnos, from which we get the word ethnic. It means people groups, ethnic groups, all kinds of diverse people. Antichrist is going to assemble a diverse group of people from all over the world in a kind of equal opportunity blasphemy of violence. And then John skips ahead to explain what would happen after all this assembling and subsequent unpleasantness transpires. It says, And he himself, Jesus, will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So after the armies of the world are defeated, Jesus is going to rule what's left with an iron rod, or we might say, with an iron fist. There will be no more leniency and no more mercy for evildoers. The reason he will rule this way is because, well, verse 16, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how he's going to make it clear that there is only one person in charge from this point on, and it's him. There will be no more democracies. There will be no more human-based laws or legal interpretations. No more corruption, bribes, and deceptions at the highest levels of government. God is going to be in charge. A little later on in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19, we get back to the confrontation between Jesus and his enemies. It says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is the globalists' final stand, a mighty accumulation of the most powerful military forces that the earth has probably ever assembled, unified to fight and defeat Jesus. But not just Jesus. They intend to fight and defeat the army that accompanies Jesus, which we just saw includes the saints of God, the Christians who come back with Jesus in their new bodies, sitting on white horses. In John's day, horses were used almost exclusively for war and transportation of elites because they were extremely expensive to obtain and maintain, so the symbology is unmistakable. Those who return with Jesus will either be warriors or elite leaders in his kingdom, or both. So that's what we will be doing when we come back. We will be fighting alongside Jesus against his enemies and occupying positions of authority within his kingdom. The ending of this section of scripture is notable. Verses 20 and 21. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. There is a lot in those verses to unpack, but for today it's enough to know that the people who fight for Antichrist are going to be killed using whatever weapons and tactics Jesus chooses to use. And I don't think he's going to be shooting swords out of his mouth. He is going to be giving instructions to his army on how to defeat his enemies. We Christians have not been called to be bystanders to this great conflict, but to be partakers in it as a heavenly calling, which is how the writer of Hebrews put it. We are to be partakers of the glory that is to be revealed, according to Peter, which at this point in history involves physically defeating an army on the earth. We are to be partakers and participants, starting with the defeat of Christ's enemies and advancing to rulership over the earth in governmental positions of authority.
And we will also have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father as adopted members of his household. This is the great reward that Christ offers to the elect. It's a free gift for those who will take it, and we Christians are to explain this great reward and extend the offer to anybody who will listen. But like all great deals, it is a limited time offer. There's an expiration date, which is either the last day that the offer is available or the last day of our individual lives. Although we're not in the time of Revelation 19 quite yet, we still have a calling, a responsibility to fight for him whose name we bear today using the tools that Jesus provided. He gave us spiritual armor to wear because in our current human condition, we would not survive a spiritual confrontation if we don't wear the armor, if we didn't wear the armor. And he gives us a spiritual sword to wield because our weapons of physicality won't do anything against our real enemies who are spirits. Are you excited to know that you have a job to do long before we get to the confrontation at Armageddon? Beyond recognizing that we've received a commission from Jesus to fight a spiritual battle and therefore have an obligation to do so, we also have to know some things about spiritual warfare if we're to fight effectively. The principles of spiritual warfare are not all that different than the principles of physical warfare. First, we need to know who the enemy is. That's an easy one. The answer is found in 1 Peter 5.8. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So our adversary is Satan, the devil, because he has been given authority by God over the whole earth, and he uses that authority to war with God. He is the head of a beast system known as the world. So in keeping with ancient Jewish and Gentile patriarchal tradition, everything beneath him is his and part of his kingdom. That includes everything that is physically under his authority and all spirits that are under his authority. So after identifying who our enemy is, what comes next? Well, a wise soldier does not start to fight unless he's first assessed the situation and the enemy's strengths. That component of our spiritual fighting education is found in Luke 14, verse 31. Or what king, it says, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. So what's the point of this instruction? It's to advise us that we should first calculate whether we have the strength to take on an adversary before trying to do so. Yes, we have the authority of Jesus Christ, but is that an automatic magical potion to ensure our victory over spirit entities? Is it possible that Christians who understand their authority in Christ could still be defeated? Jesus told us in Matthew 10.16 to be shrewd as serpents, implying that we should develop a level of craftiness, care, and calculation. We are not to be rash and careless. So we have to know not only who our enemy is, but his strengths and our own strengths. Are we spiritually strong or weak? There are many armies that get smashed to bits because they are weak and poorly trained. Soldiers have to learn concepts of warfare, equip themselves with appropriate tools and weapons, and then practice what they've been taught by repeated training long before they head out onto the battlefield. And once they are on the battlefield, they have to be led by officers who employ good battlefield tactics and follow sound strategies. In the world of spiritual warfare, there are different levels of spirits that need to be assessed. In Colossians 1.16, Paul identifies four levels of spirits who were created by Jesus Christ, some of whom occupy positions in heaven and some of whom are on the earth. From highest to lowest, they are thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. In the Greek, these words are thronos, kuriates, 
RK and exousia. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul identifies two levels of spiritual enemies, which are translated as rulers and powers. These are the words arche and exousia again, which are the lower two levels of the four in Colossians. It is these two levels that Paul says we are to fight using the full armor of God. He did not mention kyriotes or thronos. In Colossians 2.15, it says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them. Those English words, rulers and authorities, are the Greek words arche and exousia again, the same two lower categories of spirits that we've been given authority to engage. Now, isn't that interesting? We were given authority to engage the same lower two levels of spirits whom Jesus made a public display of. Notice that the passage does not say Jesus disarmed Kyriotes and Thronos. Surely he has the power to disarm them too, but apparently he did not. I think that tells us something important about the power structure that had been put in place by God the Father. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was sufficient to humiliate the lower two levels of spiritual authorities on the earth, but the time was not right to disarm or humiliate the higher level authorities. In 1 Peter 3.22, it says of Jesus, Who has gone into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him? Here we have the term exousia again, one of the lower two levels of authorities, but we're introduced to two new spiritual terms. They are powers, dunamis, which means strength having to do with miracles, influence, wealth, numerical superiority, or armies and angels, angelos, which means, of course, messengers. So in heaven, which is where Jesus is seated in this passage, the exousia, dunamis, and angelos were subject to the commands of Christ. So these are spiritual entities who are found in heaven, whereas the others are spiritual entities who are found on earth, exousia seeming to split time between the two. So, in just these few verses, we can begin to discern some of the organizational structure of our opponent including the relative strength and power of these organizational elements. Using an analogy, the smallest fighting unit in the U.S. Army is the platoon. Now, I know there are squads and individual soldiers, but the basic fundamental unit of fighting capability is the platoon. It has about 40 men, is well-armed, and is able to accomplish some feats of battle, especially against people who are not so well-trained or equipped. Even so, You don't take a U.S. Army platoon and throw it against a Russian division of 8,000 men and expect a good outcome. I don't care how well-trained and equipped the platoon is that you use, even one consisting of special operations soldiers will not survive an encounter with a full division all by itself. Likewise, we're not to attempt to fight the higher levels of spiritual entities. We've only been ordained to fight the lower two divisions of spirits that Jesus defeated and made a spectacle of. These higher level authorities are not for us to attack because we're too weak to take them on and they have not been placed on the spiritual warfare agenda for today. That raises all kinds of questions as to what type of power and authority these higher level spirits wield and who will be contending with them when Jesus returns to the earth. But that's not for us to know right now. It's enough for us to take on and battle the two lower divisions But first, we need to know what kind of authority they wield and how do they wield it. What is their job exactly? For the next few episodes, we're going to consider the spiritual elements of this war, 
how they interact with the physical elements of the war, and the best way to engage the spirits that were authorized to fight. We just need to understand who we are allowed to fight, where we can find them, how we are to engage them, and which entities we are absolutely to avoid engaging. And we need some instruction and training in the use and deployment of the armor and armaments that Jesus provided us before we try to confront any actual spirit. Are you ready? We will start all of this in our next episode. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and undergroundchristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord God, we live in a world at war both on the physical level and the spiritual level. It can be overwhelming for us just to contemplate what is really going on. Your son Jesus said that he will always be with us and never forsake us no matter what the enemy will bring, so we rest in that promise no matter what lies ahead. Whether we choose to fight as you've directed us or we choose to sit this one out, we know the enemy is going to bring his weapons of war to bear on our bodies and souls to tear us down and devour us if he's able. So please provide us with the strength to pick up our cross and follow Jesus into battle and grant us the protection we need to start training in the intricacies of spiritual warfare. Extend your hand of protection over those who listen to this podcast and their families so they will develop the courage and determination to be the soldiers of Christ that you intended them to be. Not a soldier of physical warfare, but a soldier of spiritual warfare. Fix our minds on the tasks at hand, tasks that will only grow more urgent with each passing day. Get us started so that when the urgency is extreme, we will be able to wear the full armor of God and fight effectively wherever the need arises. There are many jobs in a modern army. Some soldiers are the instruments of war. Some save lives as medics and doctors. Some move supplies and feed those who are fighting. Whatever our particular job in this spiritual battle, equip us to succeed and stand firm with our brothers and sisters who fight beside us. No matter the outcome on this earth, we look forward to your son's kingdom where he will display his power and glory and honor as well as yours and the Holy Spirit's. So help us get there and not fall to the enemy by believing lies and deceptions. And we ask all these things in your son's precious and glorious name through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.